Infections are infectious Like a dog scratched ear But pleasure is high Welcome to the Box Tunnel Survivors Group, a place for those affected by the issues raised in the TV show, Being Human. Hello, my name is Michael and welcome to the show. It's a big episode today to mark the end of Series 2. We have Being Human creator and showrunner Toby Whithouse. I guess in some ways I'm kind of a showrunner too because I run this podcast. But yeah, I think I'm going to put that on my CV. So just a quick heads up ahead of the interview. When Toby refers to the BFI event, he's talking about a screening and Q&A that happened about two or three months previously, after the event, he came over and had a chat with a few of us at the bar. This is when the podcast was mentioned to him. And uh, after that, some arrangements were made, some details were swapped. And this is why the interview happened. I did not mention the podcast and I wouldn't have done because if I'd mentioned it, it would just come out like, Hello, Toby. I really like your stuff, I like the being human and you know, do a show, would you like to come on my podcast please? And uh, that wouldn't have been good for anyone. Also this was recorded back in March, so there'll be a couple of little cultural references in there that probably don't stand up four months later. That's how quickly the world moves nowadays. So here it is, I'm delighted to present to you the interview, this is Sue Hemming and myself, having a chat with Toby. Firstly, we should introduce you, as Fergus did to Hal in Series 4, Lord oh, Lord Toby. Sue, Sue, I hope you're bowing. I am bowing. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. It's, very, it's, it's been a long time since anyone called me that, much regardless of how many times I ask. Where did that come from? Because I think I started reading the blog on Series 2, and I'm sure that was your name then in Series 2, so it must have been the blog. I've absolutely no idea. I, again, I have to reiterate, this is not a name. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's not on your passport. It's not on my passport. Um, it's um, my partner who just flat out refuses to call me that. So <laughs> uh, I think it was just something that just appeared on the on the blog one day. Um, I, and, um, and and who am I to argue? So the most important question of the podcast: we always start with this. How do you identify as a vampire, a werewolf, or a ghost? Oh man, what a great! Oh god, what a great question. Oh, oh, you could tick other. <laughs> um, oh, for the moment, I'll t- for the moment I'll tick other, but I don't. Oh, man, God, I could spend the next hour just kind of arming and arming about this. I think that I don't know. I think we, I think we all have a little bit of all three of them in us, and I think that they, and I think they're kind of on rotation. I remember Matt Bush, who, who um, produced seasons one and two. We were talking about the characters, and he and he said, Matt and I had been, had been friends for a long time before we worked together on Being Human, and he said, you are basically, you split your personality in half, and you would have Mitchell and George, which I thought was quite fair. I think all writers kind of 
you know, I think it's probably true of every writer. Um, he said that, and, I, and that sort of stuck with me for a while, and I pondered that for a long time. If you died today and you were stuck in limbo on Earth, what do you think your unfinished business would be? Um... Finding out whether he's a vampire, werewolf, or a ghost. Yeah, I mean, that would keep, that would keep <laughs> busy. Um, I don't know. I think probably bringing about the, the ultimate and uh, conclusive end of the d- d- definitive downfall of Boris Johnson. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's something that just will not die. <laughs> so, uh, I think it's that. No matter how many times you hit it with a cricket bat, he still comes yeah, out, doesn't no, he? Just keeps coming back. So in terms of the early stages of being human when you were writing it, uh, an American werewolf in London is obviously an influence. But once you decided on the supernatural element of the show, how much knowledge did you have of the other things like vampirism and, and spirits in terms of popular culture? Well, I mean, the thing is, I think, I, I think that just the kind of the, the amount that... I mean, as I've always said, I, I was such a huge horror and comic book fan, uh, all, you know, from, from as far back as I can remember. So I was kind of, I was sort of steeped in it anyway. Um, so, and the thing is, is that it, it was my natural, you know, it was, I, I kind of pushed the show. It began as a human house share and the characters were, were you know, and the supernatural element was added later on. And this, you know, the supernatural element was in it was something that I brought in because that was my natural kind of, um, you know, that that was that was a, a, a genre that I was really interested in and mm. that I felt really that really kind of excited me. And so, and that was because I'd spent all of my childhood just steeped in in that genre. And so, um, I'd absorbed a lot of kind of you know a, a lot of sort of information and a lot of kind of you know useless information about about the genre and about the, the archetypes but also the thing is also the other things i've said is that you know everyone's version of say a, you know versions of werewolves tend to be very similar yeah um, but everyone's you know there, there are there are so many different iterations of vampires and so the vampires in dracula are different to the ones in True Blood are different to the ones in Ultraviolet, you know, and so on and so on. So we we ended up kind of cherry picking the elements of each of each one that we wanted, and sometimes these were done for kind of you know slightly prosaically for budgetary reasons, but but inevitably they were done for editorial reasons. So if there was an aspect of vampire law that we that we just thought would would open up a lot of material and a lot of stories, then we would cherry pick that. Um, and actually, it was inevitably the stuff that's, you know, for, so for example, the notion of, um, you know, we, one thing we did reject was the notion of vampires not being allowed to go out in mm. daylight. And that was a budgetary thing because shooting, you know, if, if, if every time one of our vampire characters had to be outside, it had to be a night scene, that's incredibly expensive. And it was such a low-budget show that we had to kind of be mindful of that. Um, but things like uh, them not having reflections, that actually, and again, you know, Matt, the producer, was a bit, was a bit sort of um, reluctant to do that because that has budgetary implications because he's saying we're going to have to then you know paint box out every time one of them appears in a reflection of a window or something like that but i still was quite keen to keep it because i thought 
there is going to come a point where that is going to give us a really good story or that is going to give us a really good moment in the story and so um often what you find with characters is and what you find when you're developing something is that um it's by creating the sort of limitations and the obstacles for a character that you actually generate story um in the same you know for example and you know if you look at um just how things have changed you know culturally and uh, on, on film and television in the last 10 15 years mobile phones have ruined drama mm. because it, people are can be reached at all times which is why you have people kind of looking at their phones going ah oh, there's no signal or i've run out of battery they're putting the impediment back in place which means that you can have that you can have a dramatic moment or a dramatic story yeah. so generally with characters it's actually um it's finding out what their obstacles are and what the what the hurdles are and what the the, the kind of infringements are that is what generates your story with being human because uh, and i and i you know i mention it a lot the fact that the show was was so low budget um because actually it was the best thing that ever happened to us it meant that we had to be so inventive and creative and economical and it forced us to um play to our strengths or to at least or at least to kind of you know and that's why I think that I think the success that being human had is because of the characters, and the reason that we focused on the characters is because it's the only thing we could afford to do. Mm. So, budgetary limitations again provided us with this fantastic opportunity, and defined the show and made made it the show it is. So, in terms of that, uh, was it ever a consideration? Because in some vampire shows and films that they have superpowers or extra strength or things like that. Was that ever an option, or was it firstly budget, or secondly storyline? Because it may be to an easy way out of certain situations. Yeah, that was something. Do you know? It's funny that never really, I never really thought of that one, mm. and ne- that never occurred to me. Um, I think that it's it's so weird. It's such a kind of weird sort of taste thing that having them, you know, drink blood, not being able to appear in reflections and live forever, is fine giving them super strength makes them a little silly. Yeah. And so, but also things like, you know, um, them being able to turn into other animals and things like that. Mm. Again, it just never, that, that would have felt kind of a step too far. And I think like, I think you're absolutely right. I think then that provides you with, well, they can just get out of this place. You get out of that kind of, you know, being, you know, trapped there or get out of that situation by turning into a rat. Or by you know smashing the wall down. Yeah. You think well in the same way. And the thing is, is that you see you know um, this on on Doctor Who. Um, I remember Russell T Davis talking about the sonic screwdriver. Um, and of course, the thing is, that the sonic screwdriver can kind of open any door except for the doors that dramatically you don't want it to open. Mm. So there was even there was I even had it in. Um, one of my episodes of Doctor Who, when you when the Doctor tries to open something, oh no, it's deadlock sealed because you know yeah. because otherwise everything gets solved really really easily. That's that's true, and also if you turn in terms of them talking uh, turning from one thing to another, a rat or something to escape, it's it's so far removed from that domestication of them sitting around the kitchen exactly. and watching telly, isn't it? Exactly, that's exactly, and it, yes, it it just takes it that one remove 
too far, I think. Um, and because this was always, because, you know, the, the sort of mission statement of, of the show was always about these, you know, these people trying to kind of renounce their, um, the, the, you know, their, their supernatural status and, mm. and trying to embrace um, something else. Yeah, you're right. It just kind of took, it just, it just took us that step too far away from that. Uh, that feeds really well into the next question, doesn't it? Because what we were going to ask about is how Mitchell and George always kept very close to the afflictions about alcoholism and anger issues. Um, but Annie, you know, we had the, the topic of agoraphobia with her, but that moved quite quickly away from um, her main character and went into bigger things. And that sort of feeds into what we were talking about with these extra powers. Annie was the only one really who seemed to move into that territory annie was always well the ghost was always the trickiest character to write and the trickiest one to um come up with a guest you know because we try obviously we tried to as you all have noticed we tried to do the characters in rotation in uh, and so each one of our characters would kind of take the lead for for that episode and the ghost stories, whether it was Annie or Alex, were always the hardest ones because the, because their guest character had to be in a... The, and we've kind of played this, you know, the, the, the guest characters for the vampire episode with other vampires. But it was possible to have, for it not to be the case, because they, quite simply, they could be seen. Hmm. And, and so they could interact with, you know, humans or with, you know, with their kind of opposite archetype. Whereas ghosts can only interact with other ghosts or with mm. other supernatural creatures, I guess. But so it was the ghost stories that were always really hard. Yes. Um, I think with Annie, we were telling much more of a. If if you look at Annie's arc over the four seasons, I think that she in a way has the biggest kind of shift in character mm. um, because she goes from being. Um, kind of a, in some ways a victim, uh, but also, you know, going from a place of not having um, much confidence to being a, being a superhero. And that's not just to me, and I don't just mean that in terms of a, her kind of expansion of powers, but, but just in terms of how she as a character blossomed and became courageous and became... Um, determined and, and adventurous, um, and kind of owned her status as you know as, as a ghost. Um, so the the, the 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 journey with her had to be a little a little kind of subtler because because by the you know partly the nature of, of, of being a ghost, I guess. Um, so we always had to tell slightly different stories with her, uh, which were hard, which were harder. Um, and so I always kind of, and I always tried to, you know, and I, I, I felt that it was kind of up to me to sort of embrace that challenge as often as possible. And so rather than kind of leave it, leave it to a guest writer. Um, so yeah, it was, she was, she was a tough one. Alex, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of sad that we only really had a, a season and a half with Alex. Um, but, um, but again, even, you know, even then we still, you know, as I said, we find that I found, the ghost stories, the hardest ones to, to devise. And Alex seemed to develop quite quickly, didn't she? Or it was almost Annie gave her a crash course in ghosting. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, so, so she kind of was a... And that was the thing, and in a way that's the kind of, you know, that's 
kind of Annie's journey that, that you know she ultimately becomes the mentor. And I think you know, as I hinted at, at the BFI thing, there were so when we when we invented the um, the thing about werewolf blood being toxic to vampires. Um, I remember getting a lot of um, grief online about people saying you've just you just made that up, um, and it's and it's true. I, it's, it's another thing that we <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? You know, to, it, it, it made kind of sense to me that you would think that's you know is that what kind of underpins the animosity between. You know the hatred that vampires had for wealth was that ultimately they could be kind of lethal to them. But uh, yeah, if I'm honest, that was just a bit of kind of justification we came up with afterwards. But the thing that I I feel that we got away with, if I'm honest, and I can finally sort of say this, the thing I feel we got away with just that nobody ever commented on to me, but I think. A little bit cheeky was Alex being able to teleport Hal out of the room before the bomb went off. Yeah, um, that was the one thing I thought. Yeah, no, nobody notices that. <laughs> um, that I would possibly do differently if I was doing it now. But um, but this sort of thing, you know, it's it's so you know all of, every all kind of supernatural stuff. It's so it's so sort of open to interpretation. Um, and thankfully, there isn't a sort of definitive version of, of any of it. Exactly, one person's definition of a, a plot hole, another person could see. Another person could, yeah, could see is totally fine. It's all because it's fictional and in a, a heightened universe. Yeah, that it's yeah, blurred. And I, you know, and, I, and obviously we we were quite. You kind of felt if you're going to bend, if you're going to bend things, you do it with that. You don't do it with character, mm. because. Um, what I think when audiences feel cheated, I think they would they would have felt more cheated if a character had behaved in an untypical way, if they'd done something that just is unearned mm. as, as a as a characteristic. If they if if um, and occasionally we we would do we wouldn't. It's not that we would do that, but occasionally we would make the characters do unsympathetic things. Like when George has sex with Daisy at the top of episode two, mm. and, yeah. Um, uh, but at, um, at, at, at the top of season two, I, that makes that makes sense to me what he does because of what the character is going through after the end of after what he did at the end of season one. Um, but and I felt that and I felt I could justify that, but obviously there would be things that would come up. Why doesn't this character do something? And that we would always be quite rigorous about. That we would always be like, no, we're not just going to not just because that gives us a good, a good story. We're not going to bend the bend the characteristics, but we but we felt more comfortable with bending the kind of supernatural law. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that the characters, like you said, is the reason that a lot of the fans love the show. And there were a lot smaller roles and and characters that the fans loved, like Gilbert, Adam. We absolutely loved their characters, and some of them did have sort of recurring roles in other seasons. Mm -hmm. But we wondered, were there any characters that were meant to have small roles, but actually the roles were extended? And was that influenced by any fan reaction? 
No, it was never. The, it was never the fan reaction, and and that's not to diminish the importance of the fans. It's just the, the timing of it, because by the time a series was being broadcast and we were seeing what you know what people were responding to, we were already so deep into writing, if not pre-production, on the mm. next season. So we were kind of too late, really, to you know to, to kind of reprise a character um, on the basis of, of that, and also because. Um, I think you know that you know that said. Well, in answer to the first question, I think that we tended to bring characters back, uh, just not really because of fan reaction, but because we could see just how brilliant they were. So Craig Roberts as Adam, for example, mm. um, was just uh, was such a funny guy, and he he gave such a good performance, and it was such a fun character to write that. Um, we just thought, yeah, we'll we'll have him back. Um, I think, yeah, again, even even Robson in um, season three, we were. Uh, I think I think it's possible that I see it so long ago I can't remember the kind of chronology of it, but I'm I'm fairly sure I would be writing the last episodes while we were filming the first episodes mm. so I could see just how good Robson was. I, I think, I think of, of all of the guests on the, on all five series of the show, I think Magnet Robson as Magnet yeah. is, is absolutely one of my favorites. Yeah. I think his performance was, was terrific. Um, so I think it would be more that I could, and also you could, you can kind of get a sense of just how an actor is playing a part, so you instinctively start writing it in um, in their voice and so on. Um, I think that so no, it was never it was never really about about fan reaction, just because you know by the time the fans were reacting, the show yeah. was already in can, and we were already well into you know the next series. Well, on that note, you've kind of covered this one. How much did you adapt scripts once Series 1 had filmed? You've seen what they're capable of and where they, they can go. How much did that influence your writing for certain characters for Series 2? Is it true that Sinead Keenan was just going to be in one series initially and then, obviously, you yeah, saw the strength? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she was so good that, um, that yeah, that um, I turned her into a werewolf at the end. Yeah. Um, uh and also because of just the dynamic between her and Russell, they were, you know, they were so close and they were so funny together and they loved each other off screen so much. Mm. And so uh, I think the thing is, is it's very difficult because, you, because in terms of their voices, you, you do it so instinctively, tuning into a wavelength. And so you just tune into their voice, you tune into the way that they, their speech patterns and so on. Yeah, it's never something that's done kind of consciously. You just instinctively do it. Mm. It's like, I mean, I never had this trouble on being human, but on a, a show I wrote very early on in my career, um, me and all the other writers realised that the lead actor just could not do comedy, mm. and so very quickly he stopped having jokes because there was, it was just, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Give the jokes to the other characters. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I was had kind of the complete opposite of that. For example, you know, it was, I remember watching episode one of season three and just seeing how good, uh, suddenly Aiden became fantastic at comedy. He has this very, very, very funny scene with the hospital administrator in um, or the or the kind of 
I can't remember what her job title was, but with the hospital administrator or something in episode one of season three, and was so funny. And of course, I was like, "Oh, for fuck! Oh, wait, so you can be funny as well? Oh, fuck off!" And so, um, uh, some people just got it all. Yeah, it's like, come on. So, um, his punishment was that you killed him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I always make a joke about this that I was writing the outline for episode eight of season two, or episode seven, whenever it was that he did the box tunnel massacre in uh, San Diego uh, no it was in, Pas- in Pasadena in a hotel because me and the three guys had gone out for uh, the Television Critics Association thing for season one and I was kind of up against the deadline so I was in my hotel room and in kind of true sort of writers that I got I ordered a jug of coffee and was sat there with my laptop Meanwhile, I could hear these kind of gales of laughter and splashing from the pool outside, and it was the three of them larking about in the pool. <laughs> I just thought, oh, fuck off. So, so all right, one of you is going down. Um, <laughs> but, um, but again, going back to what we were saying about doing things out of character, and, and <clears throat> so even when they do something very extreme, like Mitchell Kipp doing the box tunnel massacre, that always felt kind of inevitable. It always felt because the the you know if you if you're telling a, a story about an alcoholic the tension is they're going to start drinking again at some point and so yeah. if you're telling the story about a mass murdering vampire they're going to start mass murdering again at some point so that always felt like it was kind of baked into um, his character that that story in some shape or form was always going to happen so even though it felt like a kind of big sort of lurch. Um, it'd be inter- actually it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this because as as an as an audience, do you remember what you felt when that happened or what you thought when he killed all those people? I I think the way series two was heading, like you say, it was always going to spill over. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I do feel that I have to slightly apologise for season two. There were I feel I made a lot of mistakes on season two. That's interesting. I think that, yeah, I think that. Um, I, I, it would. I. I think that because if I'm going to take credit for the stuff that works, I feel I have to kind of take responsibility for the stuff that didn't. And I think that season two, there's a lot of missteps. Um, and what was so odd is that we we'd done this very successful first season and then just forgot what it was about the first season that we got right. And so there's stuff in season two that I just think was was a was uh, was a mistake. I think. Weirdly, at the time, I think sometimes as a writer, I would have an odd relationship with being able to write comedy. Mm. I think, and I remember having the same thing when I was an actor that um, I would play a lot of comedy parts, and I would always think, "But, but I'm a serious actor. I should, you know, I'm I'm a classical actor, and actually, I'm not. I was a, you know, I was a, I was a good comedy actor." And I think as a writer every now and then, I think, no, 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 I want to be taken seriously. And I want I want this. And I think that's why I slightly pushed it down a, a quite a dark path from season two that, that meant we were, or I was kind of forgetting a lot of the stuff that made it work and a lot of the stuff that people liked about it. And so then... There was a, there was a kind of then we we kind of course corrected on, on series three and I think season three is probably the best season. Okay. Um, 
And uh, we suddenly was like, well, come on, do the stuff that works. And so that's why the, you know, we, we, I feel we, as I said, I feel we course corrected on season three. That's good. That's mad. Because to me, I, I personally, I think everyone's got their favorite series. To me, series two is my favorite. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm, just, I'm not going to argue. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's really nice to hear. I, because I, because of course I look at season two and think, oh God, this is embarrassing. Um, <laughs> not all of it. Not all of it. But I think, I think there's stuff in there that works really well. Uh, uh, the, the performances are terrific everyone is so kind of committed to it and um, a lot of the guest performances are terrific I really loved Lindsay Marshall and Donald mm. Sumter yeah. um, uh, but there, there's stuff that I look at it and go that was that was a, an error of judgement okay do you think it was influenced at all by the fact that it moved from Bristol up to Barry and Cardiff um I don't know. I think I'm really pleased we did that. Um, that felt like um, I'm, I'm, I was very pleased we did that. The decision to make that again was quite a prosaic decision. It was. It was. It wasn't an editorial decision. Mm-hmm. I think that there was a feeling within the BBC that this is a BBC Wales production. It should be filmed in Wales, and so um, it was. It came more from that than us kind of deciding we wanted to, to, to kind of up sticks and move it. Um, and, and then I think, it, and I think it found its home. I think that, I think that we were, we were very happy with it being in, in, uh, in Cardiff. And I really loved the, I think Andrew Purcell, who was the designer on all, on the whole show. I think that the, what he did with Honolulu Heights, yeah. uh, was just an absolute, I always remember this is, and again, this is just kind of geeky sort of, um, fanboying of Andrew but I always remember being shown around the set uh, kind of when he was finished and he was just kind of talking me through it and his attention to detail is absolutely extraordinary to the point where he and I've never forgotten this he he, um, he would point at the the corners of the of you know where the kind of walls intersected and he said that he he would sand down the corners <laughs> because it's an old house. And so the corners would be just, they'd be slightly rounded. And he would say that's also because the shadow it then casts isn't sharp. And it's all, and it, I was just so kind of impressed mm. by that t- attention to detail. And, um, and, uh, and it's all stuff that's kind of invisible to the eye, but I just was so blown away by, by that kind of just, detail and professionalism and so on yeah absolutely me and sue briefly went into honolulu heights after series five had finished and we were just like uh, they were starting to take it down then but even then it still looks pretty impressive oh it's amazing yeah 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 Yeah, okay so it's common knowledge that it was aiden's decision for mitchell to die late on in series three production and without getting it all into the tv politics of it all uh, but that, along with Russell and Sinead leaving soon after, must have been huge. So how did that affect your work on Series 4? Did it involve big rewrites? Um, no, I think, to be fair, we kind of knew um, before we sat... There was a bit of... There was a bit of no, I, I think, to be fair, we, we knew when we sat down to do Season 4 that... Um, Shin- we we would start with Sinead gone mm. and Russell would be leaving at the end of episode one. So it wasn't too 
uh, it wasn't too disruptive. Uh, we, 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 we kind of knew, you know, what we were, we knew, we knew the hand we were being dealt, yeah. so to speak. So that was fine. I think that, and again, you know, to be, and, and people at the time would ask, you know, would say, oh God, you know, that must be really difficult to lose all your characters. Um, and actually, and to be fair, we, you know, it was kind of, uh, it didn't all happen at once. We, we lost them, you know, they've moved on sort of, you know, in a, in a, you know, sequentially rather than all at once. And, um, and I've always thought that actually it was, it was, again, it was that what would have been infinitely harder would have been to have the characters stay mm. and be finding more stories for them that didn't involve them radically changing character. Yeah. Um, that would have been infinitely harder. But if you, because if you're going to stay true to the characters, then it just becomes increasingly difficult to generate stories for them that don't um, compromise them as characters. Mm. Um, and so I was, I was incredibly sad. And that was, to be fair, that's something I, I've only realised in hindsight. Um, I think at the time there was a real sense of like, okay, boy, okay, new characters, right. I think you know. I think we maybe we had a you know maybe we had a sense maybe even on a subconscious level. So when we were introducing Tom in season three, mm. there was perhaps an element of like you know just in case we ever need a new werewolf. Um, and also that was particularly if you look at Tom as a character versus George and um, <clears throat> Hal as a character versus Aiden uh, versus Mitch. One thing that that. I'd kind of recognised from seeing long-running shows that has, um, had to recast or had lost their cast and had to sort of you know, repopulate. Um, what I'd recognised, but it's a mistake to kind of to uh, replace like for like. Yeah. Actually, yeah, what you want to do is you want to replace them with the complete opposite. So, so Tom, as a werewolf, is the absolute you know couldn't be more different to george similarly how couldn't be more different to uh to mitchell and same with alex rather than replace george with another <clears throat> sort of fastidious uptight werewolf yeah. you know who you know <clears throat> wants to kind of control everything and 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 is very kind of domesticated you want somebody who was literally raised by wolves um, because that's just going to generate new stories, new conflicts, new challenges. Um, it would have been a mistake just to try and just kind of, you know, replay your greatest hits. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty in the new characters, because I think, like you say, any dialogue that Tom says, you couldn't put those in the, the, the mouth of George, or any, exactly. di any dialogue that Hal says, you couldn't imagine Mitchell saying exactly. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, exactly. I think on certain shows, when they get a replacement, you know, speech marks replacement in, uh, yeah. Misfits is a prime example. I love the show Misfits, but once Nathan had gone, they replaced him with Rudy, and because he was crude and said all the kind of things that Nathan said, yeah. apart from the superpower, it was all it, it was like, well, we're, we're just changing the face, but it's it's pretty yeah. much the same character. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was, um, uh, and funnily enough, um, I won't be indiscreet and say who it is, but uh, an actor who I spoke to recently was um, telling he is a regular in a long-running show and he wanted to have some time off 
departments, producers, or, or you know, he had to be away for a couple of weeks, and so they would have to. And the, and the producer was like, "Oh, don't worry, it's fine. We'll just give your dialogue to another character." Yeah. And he yeah. was like, "It shouldn't be that easy. No. It really shouldn't be." Um, but you know, that was something obviously uh, you know we wanted to we wanted to avoid. Um, well, one question we had, and you've kind of touched on it, and the fact that some cast changes were forced in Tom and Alex, though. It did seem like you had natural successes to take over. So was this down to good fortune or incredible foresight? And you've kind of answered that one. Yeah, like I said, I think we, we I think that it was, yeah, because we were kind of lining up a replacement ghost, and 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 Tom was absolutely kind of in the back pocket just in case Russell ever left. Um, so uh, I also, if I'm honest, I don't quite know what we would. I don't quite know what we would have done with George and Nina and the baby um, I don't quite know but we would have found something to be honest we would have found something this is slightly off this is slightly off, off, off topic but um, had we done a sixth series I would have wanted Hetty as well uh, as, a, as a regular really because I just thought of having a foul mouthed you know <laughs> 500 year old vampire that looks like a 10 year old girl it's just funny yeah. and so um that i would you know I, I, I would have pushed for that um but it was never meant to be <laughs> so in sense of once nina was pregnant early in series three was it always a plan to go ahead with duke's prophecy or was that kind of no, built on? no that was all kind of it's sort of hastily mm. together um I, I can't remember. Like I said, it's so long ago. Yeah. I can't remember, you know, how and when it happened. But we were. I mean, this is the way when you're storylining. You because um, the way it would work, I would go in. It would be like an office job. So for weeks on end, I would go into the offices at Touch Paper, and it would be me, Phil Trudeauing, and Laura Cotton sitting in a tiny little airless room with a whiteboard for weeks and weeks and weeks, <laughs> just coming up with stuff and rejecting stuff and, and gradually <clears throat> filling the whiteboard. Um, you might spend a week developing a story and then go, yeah, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then jettison the lot. And apart from the kind of time constraints, apart from the fact that you, it, it never really bothered me because I always feel that if you reject, if you reject a story, you're getting a, a step closer to the, to the right story. Um, but so the prophecy was probably just another one of the stories that we came up with that, that kind of took root and just managed to, mm. you know, stay the course. You thought that season two was quite dark, but what we had thought is that season three was criticised for being quite dark, and then season four was a lot lighter, and we wondered whether that was intentional or just a natural progression of the story. Um, there's no, no, <clears throat> there was never, There was never a kind of... A decision that it, all of those things just happen completely naturally, and um, you know, we, there was never a, um, a a decision that we would say, "Oh, this season is going to have this kind of palette." If you see what I mean, um, it would always. I think the thing is with season three <clears throat> because having done the box tunnel story, then season three was essentially Mitchell's retribution. Hmm. Um, And so uh, if we were, you know, that was, so that was always going to be a dark story. That was always going to be, um, 
because it was always going to end in Mitchell's death. Um, and so maybe I think you know what I like about season three is 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 the way that the walls kind of close in on him as mm-hmm. as the series as the series goes on, um, and he gets increasingly kind of paranoid and anxious. Inevitably, that's going to have a different tone to it. Uh, I think um, the three, you know, the, if you look at the threat um, in you know the threat in season three in the form of Leah is established in the first episode, and then she remains there, you know, quote unquote, in spirit throughout the rest of the throughout the rest of the series. Whereas the you know we we've personified the threat. Whereas in season four, there's all this talk about the old ones being on their way, but they don't appear until the very end of episode seven. So I don't know. I'm just kind of vamping here, um, uh, but I think that um, uh, I I wonder whether that. Yeah, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I think it's because <laughs> we were moving to. I think it's because we. We'd kind of said from the get-go that season three was going to be about the death of a main character. Mm-hmm. Then that is going to have, I guess, have a, a certain tone to it. While the show has always had supernatural elements, of course, because it's about where werewolf vampire and a ghost. In the way that you propose the corridors, which are essentially mm-hmm. a form of time travel, was it a natural progression for the show to touch on that kind of scientific time traveling? <laughs> Or was it? Um, is it? It's a very unique way of doing it. To be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to, the thing about it, if you think about ghosts, they are time travellers mm. because they lived in a certain point and yet they remain constant, and then they're popping up at a different point in the space-time continuum. There, you know, there is an argument that it, that it's it, it's really kind of a, a it's a development of a of a theme that already kind of exists within it, within the mythology. Um, I, I'm, you know, to be honest, I did meet with some resistance okay. um, in season, you know, when, because if, if, again, I can't believe I'm, I'm happy to ask you this, but the, season four begins with the, with the kind of lurch into the future, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I met some resistance with that, and, um, but I absolutely, I really fought, had to fight for that. Um, because I think there was a sense of like, hang on, hang on, we're we're, we're shifting genres here. So there was a, there was some reluctance there, but I was really kind of um, adamant that it would. I was I just thought I was just my argument was like, it will work. Trust me, this is going to work. I'm pleased we stuck with it. But yeah, there there was a bit of um, there was a there was a bit of resistance. I think something you mentioned at the BFI about uh, the time travel aspect of it was you felt confident in it because you were always clear that it would be resolved and we would never get to that future. So in in a sense, it's a it's a it's a one of those parallel timelines. It's not the yeah, set future. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and um, because for me, the 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 whole thing about this show is the kittens always have to be stuffed back in the box. Mm. Whereas, as I've said before, you know, on Doctor Who, that you know, there are aliens constantly invading the Earth, and and aliens seem to be kind of a, a kind of an established fact in the Doctor Who world. And I never really wanted to do that because, again, as I've said before, the show, you know, the the stories and the books and the comics and the films that I loved growing up 
were the ones where it was taking place in our world. For me, it felt that it could be happening around us. And that felt like a much more enticing, possible world to escape into. Um, I hated school. And mm. so I was constantly sort of escaping into my own imagination. It's those kind of stories that I was drawn to rather than a world where, you know, the, a, a world that was just too different from the world that we lived in. I thought if, if, if these creatures could exist and if these stories could be taking place around me, I could possibly be in, I could be sucked into those mm. stories. You see what I mean? Yeah. So when so when you were in a classroom looking at a door to the corridor, you were thinking, where could that corridor lead? Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, be fair, to be fair, the whole thing about the, the afterlife being a door, again, absolutely a budgetary constraint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, and again, it was, you know, and it, it just kind of made perfect sense um, that that's how we would do it and that's how it, how it would be. And it was, um, I'm really pleased, I was really pleased but again, it was because of, because of the limited budget, it forces you to, to approach something in a much more inventive way. Hmm. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I think it would have been a very different show if we'd had a colossal budget, and I don't think it would have been as good. No. And we loved that with the doors because it was connected to the characters. Like you said, we were connected with the characters mm. and each individual door was different because it was related to something to do with that character's background and we absolutely loved that. I think also it probably sprang from a random line I wrote in the pilot where Mitchell says to Annie about um, the corridor and the men with sticks and rope. And I think at the time I wrote that just if I'm completely honest, it just was a cool line. Mm. I didn't really have any sort of grand plan with that. Um, and it stuck and people and people really responded to that line. I think it, it, it caught people's imaginations. And so then the corridor became a motif. Um, but I think it, it, it sprang rather randomly from from a, a, a line I, I kind of wrote a bit off the cuff. Yeah, I guess you're just building on things you've done in the past you think well doors corridors oh yeah, afterlife yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you're just connecting it all and like yeah, like so go on sorry well it just it makes it it makes you appear much cleverer <laughs> because it's like wow see how it was seeded and that's the thing sometimes you you know they, you look back at the first episode and you think oh wow how they they seeded that in in the first episode <laughs> it's, i bet they didn't i yeah. think they probably put that in in the first episode and then was you know casting around later, thinking, "Oh God, how do we how do we solve this?" Oh, hang on, somebody said something in the first episode. I think that happens more more often than we care to admit. But what I thought was an interesting take in the corridors is at the start. You've mentioned uh, the episode Leah, is when yeah. Mitchell goes to go and get Annie, and he he's taking into well, the, firstly we also see Leah's bedroom, so that takes her into her world, so we can see her world. But then he's taken to all these exact places where he's committed hor horrific yeah. things yeah. and that's that's such a uh i don't know it's so vivid that you've got these gray doors and each side he's being haunted by his own past so it's a yeah. really and, and you i know you won't take the credit you go well i just blagged it but the way it came about was very interesting because i don't think i've seen something like that on tv before Again, I think again, you know, rather than sort of them sort of travelling on, you know, a magic carpet or a or a cloud or kind of, you know, teleporting, it was just what can we afford to do? 
Um, and and often, you know, and I'm I'm just really pleased that it turned out to to, to work. Um, so we talked a little bit before about how we, you wrote the new vampire character Hal to be completely the polar opposite to Mitchell. Um, but we wondered, did you enjoy that, or was it a challenge? How much did you enjoy writing Hal as opposed to Mitchell? Oh, good. no, enormously, because, like I said, it would have been much harder to to carry on writing, to you know, carry on writing those characters and still stay true to them, because. You know, if you look at this, is why I've never really got into soaps, because if you've got a character who's in something, you know, who's in something for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, then that character is going to go through so many unnatural transformations. And so, you know, they're going to end up killing people and having affairs with people and, you know, mm. uh, going, you go into prison for crimes they didn't commit and things like that. And so, uh, so the thing is, you know, the, there just comes a point where you have to abandon any notion of staying true to a character, and I just didn't want to do that. So it was, it was, you know, if I'm honest, it was quite good, as I said, that we found, you know, we had to come up with new characters, and Hal was great because, it, there, you know, I, I really enjoyed his, um, you know, there's a line in that um, episode we saw at the BFI when Tom is hinting that that he go along to dinner with um, Hal and Alex. And Hal says, three people can't go to dinner <laughs> together. That's barbaric. <laughs> and and that, that sums Hal up. That kind of pomposity um, uh, sums him up. And that's enormous fun to write. You won't know you won't know this at all, but barbaric, because it's a word that appears quite a lot in human being human. And that's barbaric is one of our catchphrases. <laughs> yeah. So I probably say that once or twice a week in my life. That's barbaric. <laughs> oh, that's great. To know. Um, yeah. So in terms of the casting for Hal, I assumed you'd written, you'd want, you wanted him to be an old worldly wise English person. So when you cast Damien and and he was Irish. What did did it come round thinking? Oh, actually, Damien. Sorry, this is your first job in TV. But can you talk in an English accent? Which way round did it go? He was, yeah, I mean, um, the, there was the character was always going to be English. He had to be, kind yes, of, you know, very yeah. very English. Um, and um, so I think that, I, to be honest, he would come in and read in, in you know, with an English accent. Mm. I, I probably didn't know that he was. I mean, the name's a bit of a giveaway. But um, I probably didn't know he was Irish. Mitchell and Sykes were soldiers, and the vampires of the future are essentially supernatural Nazis. And another yeah. of your shows, the game, is about the Cold War. So, yeah. what is it about the themes of war that you like to explore in your writing? Uh, of course. Um, I mean, the thing is, is that in terms of in terms of Mitchell, then that was in a way them being soldiers was, I think, possibly slightly incidental. Mm. I think that um, that wasn't necessarily a defining characteristic for them. Um, but in terms of the, but the, the Cold War absolutely goes back to, to what I was just saying about 
the notion of there being a conflict or some kind of story going on around us that's invisible because the cold war was kind of was invisible mm. in lots of ways and you you know that i just had this always had this thing about you know the, an image of being like in a sort of public some kind of public place like a square or a train station or something and the person who is your arch enemy being on the other side and you seeing them and there and there being this this conflict and this epic sort of war between these two factions that is existing completely under our noses yeah. completely, you know all all around us um and so i think and so and the cold war is in a way just a sort of thematic continuation of of what i was doing with with being human in terms of what came first, did the Series 5 scripts come first or the cancellation by the BBC? Which, in which order did it happen? Did you know when you were writing Series 5 yeah. that it would be the end? Yeah, we, we knew. And I think yeah. that uh, we knew quite early on. And so we wanted to go out with a bat. And that was why, you know, the devil was the, was the mm. villain, the big bad for that, for that series. Um, and the thing is, is that we really couldn't argue about it because you know bbc3 was was created to be uh, kind of giving new shows and new formats um an opportunity and you know we'd run for five seasons by this point and and you know we'd won awards and it was you know they'd been been re-shown on terrestrial channels and so on so it it no longer really fitted the remit of the channel and so we were kind of a bit of a victim of our own success, I guess. But I think, and again, it's I wanted to kind of, I, I either I either I would have needed a year off between season five and six, or it was a good place to stop because I, you know, in order to maintain, you know, in order to kind of maintain, you know, for quality control, it was probably five seasons was probably a good place to stop. Mm. Were you happy with the ending? Do you because it sparked quite a few theories with the fans afterwards about um, whether that was the actual end or was there an alternative that was sort of hidden? Did you hear any of the fan th- theories, and which was your favourite? Um, I would possibly do it differently if I was doing it again. I think that you know, there's the DVD extra scene. Yeah, where they sort of fight back. I think maybe I was a bit, um, you know, I, I, I was always a big Sapphire and Steel fan, and they, 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 that show ended with them kind of trapped in limbo, and maybe it was a bit of an homage to that. I think, if I'm honest, I'd probably play it differently now, um, and just give them a, I don't know, because in some ways. Again, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier that the the notion of Alex being, for example, kind of resurrected and suddenly, okay. so suddenly she has a body again. Mm. How how you know? So suddenly, Hal isn't a vampire. Tom isn't a werewolf. How all of those things have now happened at the end of the series. So you know, there's an argument that you know those having those things happen. Those are impossible. Yeah. Those can't happen, even even within the pathology of a show like this. So, it possibly, possibly, it's a way of saying we haven't just completely contradicted what the show is. So, arguably, 
having that ending is more in keeping with the show. Having the having the reveal that they're trapped in limbo yeah. is more in keeping with the with the integrity of the show than having them suddenly having lost their supernatural elements. So I can kind of defend it, I guess, but I possibly would play it differently. <laughs> I remember watching it the first time and I because I was just so like Oh my god, what's happening? What's happening? I would I looked away from the screen at you know the tilt at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, they can't be human, they can't be human. What's happened? What's happened? I go on Twitter and everyone's like, ah, but they're not really human. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Oh, I see. And and me and me and Sue and a few of the other bloggers, we went on Skype, God, to the early hours of the morning. We re rewatched it, we were having our theories. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay, I feel a bit more happy now because it's it's almost like a I mean Anyone can watch that and interpret. If they want to see that and go, like you say, the characters become your own now. They're yours. Yeah. Some people yeah. can watch it and go, yeah, they're human. They're living their life the best yeah, they can on Earth. Also, the, the, but having done that, it, there is an argument that, that by having them trapped in limbo gives a further life to the show that yeah. having them return to human, being human doesn't, I guess. So maybe it's maybe this is how I justified it to myself at the time I wasn't kind of you know I think the ending was absolutely my idea but I I, want I, you know I maybe I felt that maybe it's just the fact that there was never going to be a kind of satisfactory ending to it other than them just carrying on being what they are you know and they they continue to have adventures and save the world it's and, just that we don't see it and like you um, say that would become like a soap opera you know that they, yeah, they'd have yeah. murders weddings yeah, exactly. <laughs> jail court so, yeah Maybe, as I said, maybe having them stuck in limbo is more in, more true to the spirit of the show than them being becoming human. Yeah. So how much does being human compare to other shows you've worked on? Obviously, I don't know if you like the term showrunner, but essentially what we call you, you're a showrunner. So what's the difference between doing that and writing for something like Doctor Who? Uh, they're very different experiences. I mean, being human, I had the time of my life mm. on that. I absolutely loved it. I, I loved everything about it. It was a, a real joy and a real honour. And um, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, and I loved the kind of responsibility of it. I loved the, the, the sheer amount of work. Yeah, I, I, it was it was just a, a delight. It's, you know, I love, you know, I have particular fondness for Doctor Who. I really enjoyed working with Stephen. And so those, that was always a real treat. You know, doing and you know, just and they, they in touch wood. I don't know why, why am I touching wood. I don't do it anymore. But um, <laughs> it was always always very straightforward. Yeah. Um, Stephen and I would have a conversation about what he wanted for this. You know, you know, we love back and forth, throwing ideas around and so on. And then I'd write the script and get some notes, then do another draft, and then I'd film it. I mean, it was it was just a, just a joy. And writing for Doctor Who is it's just it's enormous fun. So, um, uh, but then you know I don't have to <clears throat> I don't have to then you know do endless you know zooms about you know the, they've got the makeup on or they've got the hat wrong in you know that epi- you know what I mean. There's, yeah. there's a lot of kind of there's a lot of administrative stuff with show running that can be a little dry. Uh, but when you're guest writing an episode, you don't have to do any of that. It's just the fun bit. Yeah. 
So off on a complete different tangent now. Me and Mikey mentioned earlier that we went to the set. Just as the show ended, season five, we got a set tour and we had a wonderful time. Um, And we... We were running around like excited children, Sue. Let's be honest. Absolutely were. With one of the assistant directors. Um, And we got given some props that we've still got and absolutely love. And I wondered if you'd been given any props at the end of the show that you've still got. I do. I've got all. I've got a few. So just in my office alone, behind me, I have. Do you remember in the dog fights? Yeah. There would be the girls walking around with the boards yeah. saying "20 minutes to the full moon." <laughs> I've got one of those. Yeah. Um, so that's my office. I've also got one of the wood carvings that Tom did. Oh wow. Um, but pride of place. Uh, in my living room over the fire, I've uh, I've got the Honolulu Heights board ah. outside. Well, that, I think uh, that's that's the ultimate, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. It's like the Big Brother chair. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, I've got that. I must have other bits knocking around. I've got in the parallel universe where the vampires have taken over the world, there would be propaganda posters. And so Andrew Purcell mocked up a few of those just as kind of set dressing. I think I've got one of those frames somewhere. But yeah, I would I I was kind of grabbing, you know, and you know, I took what I could. I mean I've also got uh, my partner as well, who um even though I didn't meet her at the time, only I didn't actually meet until years afterwards. Um, but my partner uh, was Rachel Cutler in the episode. That, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I got that. I got that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she'll be delighted to say it on those terms. <laughs> That's great. I don't think you're going to answer this one. No. But who's your favourite character? Um. Uh, oh well, I would say Rachel Cutler. Uh, <laughs> Shall we, shall we rephrase the question? Who did you most enjoy writing, maybe? Even that's a hard one. I enjoy kind of writing all of them. I think that, as I said, if I could do, if we, if we were to do a sixth series, I really enjoyed writing the scene that Hetty had. <laughs> she had because she had that little online prequel with Ivan and Daisy. Yeah. Um, and then she had that little scene at the top of season four, five. Four? Five. Yeah, five. five. Yeah. Uh, that was a lot of fun to write. <laughs> so, uh, Hetty was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm going to go with Hetty for the moment because then that offends no one. Yeah, we can say Hetty in the parallel universe of Series 6 where it exists. Yeah, exactly. She <laughs> Where she is a regular. <laughs> so, it recently came out um, with the Radio Times interview that there was a possibility of it being a human movie. How close did we actually get to one? A million miles away. <laughs> There was, we had a, we had like two meetings with workings. How? What was the context? How did? What was the context for this? Oh, it came out in a Radio Times interview about two or three weeks ago. With who? Uh, with you. <laughs> I, I think, I think, I think you spoke. I, I, I think they might have just taken a couple of sentences and run with it after the BFI. I think they spoke to you. Or maybe yeah, they're just right. yeah right okay I thought maybe they're just getting an old quote and rapid putting something together and oh so is that on the Radio Times website yeah oh right I should read that um, <laughs> oh god it was a million miles away we had a couple of meetings with Working Title 
where where it was kind of but and I and I think I wrote like an outline, but they detected and they were absolutely right. They just said your heart is just not in this, is it? Mm. And it's because they wanted three new characters. Yeah. And by this point, I'd done so many different iterations of the three characters. So there'd been the original three, the replacement three. There'd been the becoming human three. Then there'd been the you know the, the the sort of parallel three of you know Hal, Leo, and Pearl. And every single you know every single one of them, every single time you do that, that's new uh, you know a new threesome, yeah. a different dynamic, a different kind of blah. And it was like, and so then they wanted another new three, and I just thought I can't do it. No, I just, I just can't. There's there's no there's no more variants left of, of this. Um, I what I'd like to have done was um, do How Leo and Pearl, but in the 1950s. And yeah. So it'd be episode so Leo coming over on Windrush, and you know the the um, you know dragged into the dog fights and and that little prequel we had of How and Leo's first meeting. I'd love to have done that, but they just weren't. But they weren't really interested in that, um, and so they wanted a. As far as I remember, they wanted a modern day one. And like I said, I was just like, I can't. There's no. I've got. There's nothing. There's no. There's no. There's no version of those characters left no. in my head. No. So we we never we it never progressed anywhere really. Before we wrap up, uh, we just got a few questions from some of the con- contributors who have co-hosted on the show. Okay, Francis asks, how involved were you in the US remake? Uh, none at all. I cashed the check. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Your name yeah. was on the screen. My name was on the screen, and uh, that was great. Um, no, I, I cashed the check. But then partly because we were still making the UK version mm. while that was being made. And so I made a very deliberate decision not to be involved in it because... I thought I don't want it to be kind of cross-pollinated, and also I don't want to be coming up with an idea for their one, and then thinking, "Oh shit, I wish I'd get, I wish I'd yeah. use that for for the UK version." Similarly, I didn't want to not be giving the US version a good idea because I was keeping it for the UK. So it was just, it just felt cleaner and simpler to just stay removed from it. Almost like a conflict of interest, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Alice says, I love the addition of Becoming Human and how it expanded Adam's story. Was there another character that you would have liked to explore more away from the main series? Oh, God, that's interesting. Um, I, like I said, I'd like to have... It's not quite the right answer, but I'd like to have done Leo and Hal's friendship in the 1950s. Mm. That I really liked that little prequel of them meeting in the cellar. You know, with the dog fights, I'd like to have, um, I'd like to have expanded on that. It was quite an introduction to Hal because that was obviously the first time we saw him. We we're like, yeah, wow, yeah, yeah. yeah. I li- I tell you another another one I liked, which I think it's a pre. I don't think it was a no, it was a pre-titles. Was um, Ivan's first meeting with Daisy in an air raid shelter? Mm. That again, it's not so much a character, but a kind of, a di- you know, just a sort of period and a dynamic that was quite fun to write. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the first meetings of characters is always interesting. Like the first meeting of Mitchell and George is um, those are always interesting to write. So I'd like to... It doesn't really answer the question, but um, 
So yeah, may, okay, maybe an answer to this question maybe Leo, but in the 1950s with Hal. That would have been so good. I thought the actor who played um, young Leo was terrific in that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was. No, I think they um, they that worked really well. And it was really interesting to see Hal as evil Hal before we'd actually seen him as evil Hal. Yeah. In Interestingly, I might, I'm sure I've probably said this in an interview, you know the bit at the top of season four when they're listening to the radio broadcast and then the vampire takes over the microphone mm-hmm. and says, we've just, you know, we've taken, you know, the earth now belongs to the vampires. Two things for that. The line, the earth now belongs to the vampires is, a, is an homage to the last line of side A of War of the Worlds which ends mm-hmm. with, the world now belongs to the Martians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, we were going to have Hal be the per- be the voice for that. So it's Hal who kind of, you know, kills all those people. But his voice was so recognisable. Yeah. That we, um, and uh, even, and Damien actually did it in the read-through, because we said, oh, you're going to be doing this. But his voice was so distinctive that he was just, he would have given the game away. See, that's, I've always... I know it's not Damien, but it still sounds a bit like a kind of a, a blood drunk howl in yeah, a way. Yeah, There's something yeah, about it. That, yeah, that was kind of that was that was a sort of bit deliberate and inevitable. Yeah, yeah. But it was actually going to be him. And then, like I said, people would have said, "Oh, what?" So he, people, but the, you know, he just would have given away the sort of reveal that we had in hmm. episode seven that um, Hal was um, going to become evil. Um, so Hannah writes, "I'm really interested in choosing the music for the show." How many of your choices got into the show, and do you have a favourite musical moment? Um, I would say I got about 50, 50% of my choices in. Um, actually, I was thinking about one. Yes, there's a, there's a sound of silence at one point, isn't there? Um, the Simon and Garfunkel one, I seem to think. Is there? I made that up. <laughs> testing my knowledge now. Yeah. The George and Nina Test, montage. Oh. Or maybe we just used that in the assembly. I can't remember. There was. I mentioned getting. I'm a big Elvis Costello fan. I mentioned getting Elvis Costello one in at one point. But it was about fifty-fifty, and inevitably, and you know, again, sort of for very boring reasons. Sometimes it would just be we can't afford that. I think I probably wanted a Rolling Stone. Oh, that's right. I remember when. Um, uh, it, it, I think it was episode six of series one when you know Mitchell thinks he's heading off to confront Herrick but actually it's the bait and twist and um, that bait and switch and it's actually George who's going to confront him mm. and I wanted um, Give Me Shelter by Rolling Stones and Matt Bush the producer was like are you insane? <laughs> That's going to cost a fortune <laughs> so, but, so inevitably if you did so often you would just not we would just not have those you know for monetary reasons Okay. Fair enough. We love the, the soundtrack. We used to have a playlist as the bloggers, and if we ever met up, um, we would play the soundtrack. Oh, really? Playlist. Yeah, playlist. So you, our... you're making us sound very sad. We are sad. <laughs> I think I had a playlist of, um, of those tracks at one point. In fact, there was, um, in the one we saw at the BFI, there was that track, um, Who Needs the Sunshine by The Heavy, yeah. which I really liked, and I'd completely forgotten about, and I downloaded it. The next day, because I um, because I'd been reminded of because I thought yeah I thought that was a really nice one. All right. Nostalgic. Yeah. Nostalgic. Yeah. Well, actually, in in weird news, this weekend the series four and series five soundtracks have actually come out. 
it's basically on streaming only but it's it's yeah, taken yeah, yeah. 10 years <laughs> wow i used to um when i was writing the latter series i would listen to you know some if i was starting the day i'd go for a run and i would listen to the soundtrack while i was kind of storylining and you know still kind of you know still still you know devising and writing yeah. it and listening to the soundtrack would really kind of help get me sort of into the right mood, into the right kind of mindset. It was really, I found it really, really useful. Like, I think a lot of fans listen to it to just create that certain scenes or imagery from the series. Yeah, there was one in particular, I remember, it was the pre-titles of episode six of season one, uh, where um, George had just been beaten up, but it was George and Mitchell's first meeting. And he'd just been beaten up by those mm. uh, by those vampires, and um, there was I remember this the music for that was absolutely fantastic because he brought in some vocals into it and it sounded well, there was a um, it's hard to explain it but I remember I used to, I used to listen to that particular track a lot because it was a real kind of departure in style from what Richard usually did yeah. All the people that found out on Twitter were so excited because we've been waiting so long for it. Now we can yeah. actually give names to certain pieces of music and go, "Oh, it's, it's called that." And oh, really? Yeah, um, yeah. Have you? Has there been, because it wasn't until season three that uh, that we started naming yeah. uh, episodes. And I seem to remember we did a thing on the blog where we I asked people for their suggestions for titles for seasons one and two. Uh, and I think they sort of became the unofficial official titles because mm. I remember there was um, the Gilbert episode. Somebody, uh, of course, he was the you know the sort of eighties music obsessed ghost, and uh, somebody suggested Ghost Town, and I thought I would never have been able to come up with something <laughs> as good as that. And I was so thrilled. Last one, I promise. It goes to Sue. Okay, so the other day it popped up on those awful Facebook memories that come up um, every now and then that I'd had a conversation with you on Twitter in 2016 mm-hmm. about tattoos and being human tattoos because yeah. I had just got a leg, half-leg sleeve of mm-hmm. cast and you'd mentioned that you were going to get a tattoo of being something from being human and I wondered if you got it. Did I? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Did I? <laughs> um, uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> um, uh, take, I've got two. Big, I've got two quite large tattoos, and it always takes me about ten years to decide what the next tattoo is. So, um, no, I never, I never, uh, never got round to that. I, I wouldn't know what I would have. You could have a tattoo of Sue wearing her being human tattoos. I could. That would be. That's really meta. That's what television eating itself. Um, Tattooception. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I haven't. Uh, I don't know what the next. I don't know what the next tattoo is. But now I feel like a. Now I feel like a fraud if, I, if it's not a being human one. <laughs> we never really had a logo. No. It's the typeface, the kind of that, the sort of looks like. Career final draft lowercase typeface we had for the titles, but apart from that, there was never a logo for it. Also, where did it cut the idea come from? Obviously, I I don't know if it's generally viewed that Full Moon is the being human theme tune, but obviously, because there's not really a big t- title opening. Yeah, 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 
Yeah, I think that I, I don't remember where that came from. I think again, it might have been a money thing because um, title sequences, title music are expensive. Mm. Also, I don't particularly. I'm not crazy about them because it's money. It's like time off. Because, with the exception of Doctor Who, which has the best, you know, title music and title sequence in the world, with the exception of that, I always think, oh, just get on with it. Mm. Come on, just get on with it. So it didn't. It didn't particularly bother me that we didn't do that. But again, it was probably a monetary thing, because, like I said, they 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 they. they and also, my scripts are always so long; they're way too long. And so we're always trying to, you know, you know, grab minutes and seconds whenever wherever we can. Yeah. Um. And so, if you're losing, you know, half a minute or so because of the title sequence that everyone has seen you know already it just feels like it's kind of false economy and also i'm wondering what you do in the title sequence would they just cut to each person they're folding their arms putting a smile you exactly. know i know exactly <laughs> or doing their doing their supernatural thing yeah um, and uh no i know it would just be yeah and, and because also i don't think they age very well if you look at the title sequence of friends hmm. and then you watch things like none of them even look like that by hmm. the time you, in, even in the first episode hmm. they've already you know because that would have been filmed weeks ahead and there would have been stylists and costume people involved since then and changed the characters and so it just i yeah i've never i've never really never really been bothered about it when you're writing script do you have a, such a clear vision in your head of how things would look or certain locations it would be. How do you find it handing over your script to the creative team? And was the outcome similar to how you imagined it? Uh, yeah, you always do have a bit of an idea, but also it's when they do it well, it's always they, their version is infinitely better than mine. Yeah, it doesn't really bother me. I'm, I'm protective of kind of my bit of the process. And so I'm much more protective about dialogue. And about um, about the, the narrative as opposed to the look. Yeah. Um, and particularly, you know, I've, I'm you know been lucky enough to work with some really terrific directors, and you kind of think if you've do, if we've done our job well and got the right director, they're going to be come up come up with something better than I can. Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't bother me too much. I I kind of think I know the stuff I'm good at, and so I'm I'm happy just to sort of stick with that. I mean, thank you very much for doing that. I appreciate your time, Toby. My pleasure. I hope the Survivors group enjoy it. I cannot offer any money, just my gratitude. <laughs> oh, wait, what? Uh, that's, uh, that's absolutely fine. You should, you, you should have read the small print. <laughs> my pleasure. It was lovely to talk to you. And you. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much to Toby Whithouse for his time. I could have talked to him for about 10 hours that night. But we had to release him back into society, back to his wife, Rachel Cutler. We had to supply him with food and drink again, because this is a very ethical podcast. Uh, Since the interview, Toby has kind of hinted that he would be happy to come back on. So hopefully we can make that happen in the future. If you would like to financially support the podcast, because believe it or not, this takes up a lot of time and a little bit of money. And I do it for the love of the show. Uh, you can go to coffee.com forward slash box tunnel pod and you can donate any kind of amount of money there. One pound, two pound, three pound, anything will be gratefully received. And it just goes forward to the running costs 
of the show. You can email the show at boxtunnelpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at boxtunnelpod and Tumblr as boxtunnelpod. You can also become a recruit and like and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. And if there's any way of leaving a rating or review, as long as it's nice and doesn't involve lots of aggressive swear words, uh, please do that as well. Next full moon, we are on to series three. We move to Barry Island and we meet Leah. That is at the start of August. I'll sign out as I sign in with Dog Scratched Ear by Henry's Funeral Shoe. Until next time, let's keep the show running. I should really plan these, shouldn't I? was the Box Tunnel Podcast, and thanks.